Welcome to the MedEvidence Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Corrin and Michelle McCormick. MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the real truth behind medical research with both a clinical and research perspective. In this podcast, we'll have discussions with physicians that have extensive experience in patient care and research. How do you know that something works? In medicine, we conduct clinical trials to see if things work. Now, let's get the truth behind the data. Welcome to MedEvidence, powered by Encore Research Group. Go to EncoreDocs.com. Well, in the first segment, we talked about type 2 diabetes drugs and the development. We also teased Dr. Korn at the Mm -hmm. end Mm -hmm. about cardiovascular and how you in your specialty got involved in diabetes. So let's continue that. Sure. Well, as I mentioned, as a cardiologist, you may ask, um, what are you doing in the diabetes space? And I'm going to make a brief comment and then I'm going to actually hand it over to Sharon because drugs are just one of many things that we do to treat diabetes. Mm -hmm. And um, I gave a little bit of the history of drug development in the diabetes space. And it turns out that there's a lot of concern about what diabetes drugs can do to the heart and whether diabetes drugs can reverse the increased risk that diabetic patients have for heart disease. So it's a balancing act. On Mm -hmm. one hand, if you get the sugar under control, that should help the heart. But that has not always been the case. And that's why me and other cardiologists have gotten involved in research involving diabetic drugs. But very, very importantly, um, there's a lot of other ways we treat diabetes. So Sharon is really the expert in this. So I'm going to hand the mic over to her. Figuratively. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we talk about um, the components of treating diabetes. And number one, we're always going to look at the blood sugar. We're still going to look at glycemic management. Um, Lows being the worst. We don't like the patients to go low. That's the hardest on the heart. Mm. I think hypoglycemia. Um, And then dangerous. People can very dangerous. People can hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. I actually had a patient once who drove to an appointment with me and her blood sugar was 40. Oh, yikes. I had no idea how she could function. Where should it be? Should be at least over 70. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anything below 70, most people are symptomatic and can feel it. But there is a symptom called hypoglycemic unawareness where they really don't know mm-hmm. when they go, this woman was a typical case. So, so to explore your point a little bit more, so 70 is a is a random blood sugar. So why don't you explain random blood sugars versus hemoglobin A1Cs in terms of management? So hemoglobin A1C is going to be an average blood sugar over three months. Now they're kind of saying it's eight weeks, Mm -hmm. actually. And I've actually seen a change in two weeks on a patient. But you're actually looking at an average blood sugar over a period of time that the doctor manages, but you have no idea of the ups and downs. So they could be going really high after meals, dropping down really low into the 60s or 50, but you're going to have a nice A1C of 7.2 7.2 when you show up to your physician and he'll say, oh, you're doing great. We're going to keep your meds. And, mm-hmm. and just to get a little detail on that, hemoglobin A1C is called glycosylated hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is obviously an important part of our red blood cells that is responsible for carrying oxygen through our system. But it also gets glucose molecules on it. And the percentage of hemoglobin with glucose molecules on it is glycosylated hemoglobin. Okay. And for people who are not diabetic, that should be 5.5 or less. Okay. And uh, people that are kind of in that you know, borderline range will start getting up to the high fives to about seven. And that's borderline. And if you're above seven, you pretty much have diabetes. Right. And I guess that's why urine is checked at a, at a well check. Mm-hmm. They're looking for sugar. Mm-hmm. If it's spilled and that's over. a blood test, by the way. Mm-hmm. The 
like hustling him. Okay. Yeah, you had a comment. I'm going to say, I'm going to go back to anything over maybe Mm 5.8. I don't think there's prediabetes. I think you already have insulin resistance and it started, but sometimes your blood sugar doesn't respond for up to 10 years Mm -hmm. of the elevated insulin. And very few physicians, but many of our investigators actually check a fasting insulin on their patient Mm -hmm. and they're trying to catch it before that sugar goes up, which is a response to the insulin and the A1C climbs. Mm -hmm. So I start looking at them when they're a lot lower. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's actually something that is debated in medical circles is when you define somebody as being diabetic. Mm -hmm. And so Sharon makes a good point that some people say anything that's above normal hemoglobin A1C should be diabetic. Mm-hmm. Huh. They're insulin resistant mm-hmm. at least. Okay. So. All right. Good to know. Yeah. So we're looking at that first glycemic management, but now the number two component that we're looking at in managing these patients is cardiovascular because they most often pass away from heart attack or stroke. And so that's where they're looking at. Do these drugs help prevent or delay cardiovascular outcomes? Beyond that is weight for type 2 diabetics. Uh, weight management is huge, and that's why some of the drugs that do cause weight gain, they're not great. Some of the drugs that do cause weight loss are helping quite a bit. Um, yeah, and go into that a little bit more and tell people what classes seem to be associated with weight gain. The TZDs. Okay. Mm-hmm. We just talked right. about that. We did. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That w- I would say that was the biggest one. Mm-hmm. There's only one class of drugs that actually removes the sugar. From the body? And we'll, and we'll get to that. And we'll get to that. We'll, we'll, that's oh. really interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll hold, we'll hold right. off on that for a second. Yeah. But how about insulin? What does insulin do when you give it? Waking. Okay. Yeah. How about sulfonylureas? Um, not so much waking. Hypo is the biggest mm-hmm. thing with sulfonylureas. They go low really quickly. Yeah. Interesting. I think that in the UK PDS study, there was a little bit of waking associated with it, but to your okay. point. And the reason I bring that up is because metformin is another class mm-hmm. that people think is not associated with weight gain. Would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. I would say it's associated with longevity now. They're okay. looking at it for that, but those studies aren't completed. Uh, uh, telomere studies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Drugs for longevity. The, 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 it's another the, discussion. The for infamous another day. telomere studies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it, it sounds like something comes from Star Trek. <laughs> right. Exactly. But um, that's a that's another, that's another podcast, theory. by the way. We'll hold yeah, off on that exactly, one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the last area that we look at is management for their um, renal and stage renal disease. The majority of patients who are on dialysis today are diabetic, type 2 diabetics. Mm-hmm. And that's the sad part. Mm-hmm. So we really need them. Some of these drugs, now we're looking at them where they help with renal as well. So tell me a little bit more about your sort of patient-oriented uh, approach. Like um, a patient comes to you, they're sent to you by a physician. Um, t- how, do you, how do you get to know that patient and target what's most important, and then whether or not they need a change in their drugs? Well, first of all, if I'm going to look at I need to see what they're on mm-hmm. and what the physician has prescribed. But then I need to see what's most important to them because it's what's important to them that you have to hook, you have to get into their mind and what where they're motivated. So are they motivated to lose weight? Mm-hmm. Are they motivated to manage their blood sugars because their kidney failure is starting to get worse? Mm-hmm. So kind of looking at that. And then literally looking at, what do you do? What is your lifestyle? How active are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I always look at where they are, and then I try to see with what changes do we make to get the outcome. How about physical activity? How do you I'm manage big that? I'm physical activity. I know you are. But it was a setup question. I, <laughs> um, I would rather see them mm-hmm. take their blood sugar before the physical activity and take the blood sugar after and mm-hmm. see the difference. Mm-hmm. When they see the numbers, 
then they'll go, oh my gosh, I just lowered my blood sugar 50 points by, by doing the quick walk. Mm-hmm. But, but isn't there a concern you. of some people that they can lower their blood sugar too much by physical activity? It depends on what drugs they're on. Mm-hmm. Totally depends on the, the medication. So mm-hmm. yes, if they're on savonylureas or if they're on insulin, they need to check that. Um, type 1 diabetics have a hard time with managing their blood sugar because they go down so much they don't have that glucagon response and they'll fall within four minutes. Mm-hmm. They'll fall down to the 40s. So type 1s are a little bit different with activity. They sometimes have to lay, raise their blood sugar to exercise. Mm. The type twos, unless they're on, you know, a medication that'll lower it, we don't ever see them go that low. Interesting. And usually they're in the 300s. They can have a change and drop. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you obviously we're clinical trial people. So what, tell me about any clinical trials that you rely on in terms of some of your advice. So some of the new studies that we're coming up with are going to have CGMs attached to them. Ah. So that's going to be a little continuous glucose monitors. So I've seen continuous that. glucose monitor. Okay. Little, it's going to be a little sensor. It's going to have a little filament going into the interstitial space. Mm-hmm. It's a little different from your blood sugar stick, right? Because that's capillary. This is interstitial. But they get real-time data. Mm-hmm. And that's, so the poor man's CGM is check your blood sugar before you eat, write down what you eat, check your blood sugar two hours after. How did you tolerate that meal? How much insulin did you use? This is going to be real-time It's a great data. tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and a so. fabulous tool. And then you know, one of the controversies, and I think there was a clinical trial that addressed this, was adding insulin to regimens to see whether or not yes. there's some specific benefit to have more insulin. Yes, even though yes. It is associated with hypoglycemia, so maybe you can comment so on that. So the T four study, yes, but, um, when they did that, they were adding insulins, whether it was a mixed insulin, a mealtime insulin, or a long acting insulin. They asked it, added it to patients who did not have glycemic control where they wanted it at the time, and they were on oral meds. And they, yes, they got the blood sugars down, but it was at the expense of weight gain from mm-hmm. the insulin and too much hypoglycemia. Right, so, and you might want to explain to people uh, short acting insulin versus extended insulin versus intermediate. So because that. I don't know if that's still big in endocrinology, but uh, you know, for many, many years, that was a real focal point. So it's, it's changing rapidly. So mixed insulins are going to have a short component and a long component. So it's going to cover your meal, maybe, or your food, and then extend you through the day. Short actings now can go anywhere. We have the new um, nasal insulin, Afriza. Mm. Yeah, you can do a little squirt before your mealtime insulin. Mm. And so you're going to have a rise in 30 minutes, and it's going to last two to four hours. And it's going to cover your meal. Okay. Long acting is going to cover your whole day at a very slow rate, low rate. So they all affect different parts. The typical is a basal bolus, the long acting covering your liver from producing too much sugar. And then the meal time short acting before the meals to cover your meals. So, you know, when I was doing internal medicine, I guess like in the nineties, we would have like NPH insulin oh, yeah, as the base yeah. and then have you know, figure out what the sugars are and give a little extra here and there. So is that gone away? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I, no, it's in the VA. I'm <laughs> okay. sorry. <laughs> they uh, still use it in the VA. Do they? Okay. That's right, interesting. How do you determine who gets which one? You know, which patient is it? That's what's part of the trial. Oh, well, these aren't trials. Good. We're talking about standard of care oh, okay. in the past with okay. insulin. Yeah. Right. We're not doing that. We are doing a trial. If you're on a basal insulin and metformin, we're going to add one of the new classes of drugs, the GLP-1s, to it and see if we can get better control. All right. So let's let's talk about the new classes. So we talked about the old classes mm-hmm. and some of the problems with the old classes. Mm-hmm. And now let's talk about some of the new classes. So um, uh, 
I guess the, the, the first one that was a new class was Bayetta, if I remember correctly. Yes. yes. So explain to people that what that is. First. It was a once a day. Mm-hmm. It's a GLP-1. Mm-hmm. So it's going to, it actually slows the digestion of your stomach. Mm-hmm. It causes the um, pancreas to make more insulin. Mm-hmm. And it actually tells the liver, don't make so much sugar at night. So the um, it's called gluconeogenesis, where the liver makes sugar, which you don't need. And it usually produces more in type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. So it kind of attacks all of those areas. The problem was slowing of the GI tract. The side effects were pretty bad. There mm-hmm. was a lot of um, nausea, GI distress. But there was weight loss. I mean, <laughs> it was weight loss. You had to tell them to embrace the nausea, but not everybody mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. And this came from the spit of the Gila monster? Yes, from the Gila monster. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. saliva. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's exenatide. It's actually a very good drug. And yeah. it's still in drugs and it's still in trial. We have a trial going on starting soon with exenatide. It won't be Bayetta. Exactly. And then I guess the, the next big one was um, a Genuvia, right? Genuvia. Genuvia is a DPP-4. Those. Yeah, that, that class that came out around the same time. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking about how we were doing the clinical trials back okay. back in the day. Okay, and because uh, uh, saxagliptin was also a DPP four. Yes, and and explain that a little bit more for everybody. DPP four. They work with the hormones in the gut. I'm going to tell you, yeah. it works very similar, like the GLP ones, the opposite. Yeah. So we're again, we're going back to the gut. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so the we're going to talk a lot about what's called GLP ones, and that's called if I remember correctly, uh, a, gl- a glucagon-like peptide. Yes, and, receptor and, agonist. Right. And, and so basically what we've learned is that there is a feedback loop when you eat. And it's between your gut, your liver, and your brain. Okay. So when you feel sated, when you have satiety, when you feel full, it's not because your stomach doesn't have any more room. Like, you know, I remember my kids talking about their belly and then their dessert right? belly, yes. which is actually very, very, very interesting. Different. Very different but, bellies. And, 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 and it, not, it actually makes sense when you know the physiology okay. because a lot of this has to do with your brain. Mm-hmm. So they, their belly was full, but they still wanted the sugar because that part of their brain hasn't been shut down mm-hmm. yet. So your, your stomach isn't actually filled uh, when you're when, when you finish My eating, my son used to say he was full except for one small round part for the cookie. Right, right. there you go, exactly right. right. And, and so this is all about the brain. I think it's adults too. <laughs> so basically, when you eat, there's a signaling cascade that occurs that involves this GLP one, and ultimately it sends a signal to the stomach and then the brain that you're full. That's a satiety signal. And one of the theories is that in diabetes, that satiety signal is not working properly. So a lot of the new research has been around how to get that satiety signal to actually protect people from overeating. Mm. So it's an interesting concept. So yeah, so the the DPP-4s is part of that pathway of the GLP-1s. And there was a drug called saxagliptin developed, I think it was by Bristol-Myers, that uh, was good from the standpoint of of doing the things that you expect the GLP-1, DPP-4 to do, but was associated with some increased risk of congestive heart failure. And this is getting back to your question about yep. cardiologists, yep. which is uh, the FDA having been burned by by triglitazone was saying, oh my God, here's another class that may be associated with some off-target effects. It may cause some heart issues. Mm-hmm. And we really need to do these massive studies now to make sure that these drugs are safe. Right. And uh, the cardiologists need to be part of this because they're going to be the ones that decide whether or not somebody's having a heart attack. Are they in the hospital for heart failure or, or other things? We need to get the cardiology community engaged. So sure enough, in these newer classes, the GLP-1s and what's called the SGLT-2 inhibitors, the FDA mandated that we do these large cardiovascular safety studies. 
And that was never the case before. You, you were able to get a drug on the market just based on showing that it, it improved glucose levels and it didn't cause too much hypoglycemia. And basically you had better control. So if your hemoglobin A1C got better during the course of the trial and the people in the treatment arm didn't do worse from a side effect standpoint than the other arm, then pretty much the FDA would approve it. But now they're saying, okay, no, you need to go out five years or even more and make sure you don't increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. But interesting thing that happened along the way is as we were doing these studies, we saw some really crazy unintended consequences. And for the, G the GLP-1 class, we're seeing people lose weight hmm. like they never did before with these other classes. And for the SGLT-2 class, and we'll, we'll explain that class a little bit more, people are actually having less congestive heart failure. They okay. were, we didn't expect this, but they were staying at a hospital, even people that didn't have heart disease. So it all of a sudden changed these drugs from diabetes drugs to cardiac drugs. Right. Mm -hmm. So now I'm a little bit annoyed that the endocrinologists are using my drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, you might you want to comment a little bit more on, on the that. The SGLT2s? Yeah, yeah. So the SGLT2s is a great class of drugs. It's the only drug that actually removes the sugar from the body. So all of the so that drugs. just for people. So if I get this right, SGLT is sodium glucose co-transporter protein. Yes. Thank okay. you. I'm just going to say SGLT2. Okay. And it's fascinating that it's it, taking the sugars out. Well, it actually changes the threshold in the kidneys. So it's all in the renal okay. reabsorption. It prevents the kidneys from reabsorbing the sugar back. It just changes it down. So more of the sugar goes out. So when the sugar goes out, the fluid goes out, the calories go out, which I think is really interesting because from another perspective, what do the other drugs do? However they work, they get it out of the bloodstream, mm. but they don't get it out of the body. Mm -hmm. So it goes to the cells or the organs and can cause damage. This drug actually gets it out of the body. And with, with that thought, we're going to move to our next section. Okay. And talk about how you choose drug classes, given all this information. I'm your host, Michelle McCormick, and we want to thank Dr. Michael Corrin for his clinical and research perspective behind the science in this episode of MedEvidence, the truth behind the data. Mm -hmm.